Well, good morning. If you're new with us here today, my name is Pete. I am the co-pastor here at Life Church Buffalo, and I personally want to thank you for coming here to church to spend some of your Sunday morning here with us. Buffalo, it is an honor to have you here. But you are joining us on week four, as you just heard, of a great series that we've been in as a church called How to Neighbor, where we have been kind of unpacking this thing that we see in Scripture where Jesus called us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Who is our neighbor, and how do we love our neighbor? And so if you recall, week one, we talked about races reconciled. And in week two, we talked about the poor empowered. And then last week, we talked about orphans embraced. And if you missed any of those uh, messages, I would encourage you to jump onto our website and click on the media page and listen to the podcast. Because this has been a powerful series together as we've looked at some very serious, significant issues facing our society and our culture today. And what I've tried to communicate, what I hope we all realize is that God has intended for us, his church, to be the answer and the solution to those issues facing our society today. But the issue and the topic that I want to talk about today specifically is about how we love those who are lonely. We want to see the lonely loved. And how do we do that? And I believe that as I go through this message today, God is going to speak to some hearts. And my prayer is that God would give us eyes to see those who are hurting and a heart to care. That is my prayer for this message today. Because this message, as you heard Pastor Lauren mention a few moments ago, I think impacts every single one of us. I think if we're honest, we've all been through seasons in life, regardless of how connected you are, no matter how many followers you have on Twitter or how many Facebook friends you have, I think if we're honest, we've all gone through seasons in life where we can look back and say, you know what, I was lonely there. Maybe you're in a season of loneliness even right now. And even if you're not, I think we all would recognize that I think we all know a lot of people in our lives that are extremely and utterly alone. And so I think this is a big issue that I want us to look at today. And, you know, it's interesting to me that when you look at the account of creation in the beginning of the Bible in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, everywhere you look, the first couple of days of creation, every, every day was, it is good. God said, it is good, it is good, it is good. And it wasn't until he saw Adam alone in the garden when he said, it is not good that man be, you know what it is, right? That man be alone, right? It's not good that man be alone. And I know we like to apply that verse to a reason for marriage and marriage relationships, but there's a bigger, bigger principle here than just marriage, because we are all made in the image of God, and God said it's not good that man be alone. And so what I want to do today, though, if I were to ask you, you know, who do you think is alone? The typical response to that or the typical thinking would be, well, people who are physically isolated are alone. People who live alone struggle with loneliness, right? Maybe elderly people, people who are widowed or a widower, shut-ins or something like that. Or maybe you've been recently divorced and you feel alone. I know for myself, the time where I felt more alone than any other time in my life was when my first wife decided after four years of marriage to walk out on me. I cried myself to sleep every single night for months because I felt alone. And Maybe that's you here today too. But what I want to do is kind of enlarge our vision or kind of enlarge our thinking about who actually really is alone or feels lonely because it's not just physical isolation that results in loneliness. There's a newer term that's come out in the last several years that kind of 
identifies this phenomenon that's been growing, especially in the West and in developed countries, called relational poverty. Relational poverty. I know in week two we talked about <clears throat> a little bit about material poverty, and I think most of us understand what that is, you know, when we lack the material resources and wealth to provide for the basic necessities of life, right? We lack the essentials to make it through our daily living. But relational poverty is a little bit different. <clears throat> and I want to kind of elaborate on that just a little bit. Relational poverty is lacking the intimacy and the connections to live a meaningful life. It's lacking support to function. It's lacking meaningful relationships with no one to listen to or share a story with. Because the truth of the matter is this, you could be completely surrounded by people and still feel utterly alone. You could be in a crowded building, a crowded room, a crowded church even, and still feel completely alone. You can be a stay-at-home mom surrounded by kids all day every day and still struggle with loneliness. You know, you can be a student surrounded by other students in high school or in your dorm if you're in college, and if you have no one that you could trust or open up to, you can still struggle with loneliness. You could be in a dysfunctional marriage, and while you may be sleeping next to someone every night, you could still feel incredibly alone. You might be a successful business person. You've risen to the top of your field, but if you have no one to share that success with, what are, what are you feeling? You feel alone, right? You may have people all around you, but if you don't feel like you can trust anyone or open up to anyone or really have anyone that cares about you, that's relational poverty. And there are so many people who are experiencing this in our society today, and it results in a nagging, gnawing sense of loneliness. And why is it that so many people in our society today are struggling with this? Why is it? I want to give you four quick reasons or theories that social experts have come up with to explain why, especially us in the West, struggle so much with this relational poverty. And the first issue is the breakdown of families. In fact, as I mentioned a few moments ago, many of you have experienced this. When a divorce happens, what do we see? Well, he gets this set of friends and she gets this set of friends and the relationships that were once there are now dissolved and the breakdown of families has contributed to this relational poverty of the breakdown of relationships in our society today. The second thing is increased mobility, meaning people don't stay in one place as long as they used to. There's no roots. We're moving around here and there from place to place. Years ago, generations would stay in one community their whole lives and develop relationships over the course of that time, but today we don't do that anymore. We move around a lot. The third reason for relational poverty in our society today is heavy workloads. We are all always so busy. How are you doing today? Oh man, I'm busy. How are you? I'm busy. How are you? I'm busy. Everyone's busy and we don't take the time because of how busy we are to truly invest in relationships and to spend time in community to develop relationships with people. And fourth, interestingly enough, despite all of its benefits, one of the things that contributes to the relational poverty in our society today is the rise of social media the rise of social media. We might get a glimpse into somebody's life, you know, through the pictures that they post on Facebook, but we're not truly getting that sense of connection. We might have 962 Facebook friends, but how many of those do we truly know? 
And what do we do when we're lonely, right? When we want that sense of affirmation. We might, you know, take a selfie of ourselves, post it on social media, hoping to get some affirmation, right? We want, we check it every five minutes. How many likes do I have? Has anybody commented on my picture, right? I suffer from that. I do it all the time. You know, how many likes do I have? And when we don't get the response that we want or we're expecting, what happens? It exacerbates that feeling of loneliness. Nobody cares about me. And experts say what we're actually doing with this now is we're deferring that sense of loneliness to later. So those are four reasons social experts give for why relational poverty is such a problem in our society today. But we're not here to talk about the problem. We're here to talk about how do we love people who are experiencing relational poverty? How do we love people who are lonely? Well, there's a lot of ways we can do that as a church, but today I want to focus and talk about three ways primarily, and these are three ways that Jesus himself loved people who were lonely. And the first way, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. We are going to love with touch. We're going to love with touch. At this moment, husbands all across the room right now are saying, amen, yes, I'm lonely. You hear that, honey? You're supposed to love with touch. (laughs) got to rise about half of you. The rest of you just either don't want to think about that or uh, I don't know. We're going to love people with touch. I want to look at a passage of scripture really quickly in Matthew chapter 8 verse 2. We see this happen. A man with leprosy came and knelt down before Jesus and look at what he says. He said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Notice here he doesn't ask a question, but rather he makes a statement. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He had no question what God could do. He knew exactly what God could do. But I want to understand a little bit. I want to pause here and help us understand what this disease of leprosy really was because it's not super common in our culture today, but in Jesus' time, leprosy, you know, was an epidemic. Um, It's still around in our society today, but we know how to treat it. It's curable, and so it's not as common anymore. But back then, I mean, there were Old Testament Levitical laws written about if you had leprosy, these are the things you could and couldn't do. And, you know, if you were around people with leprosy, these are the things you could and couldn't do. I mean, these people had to announce their arrival anytime they came into a crowd or where there were going to be people around and say, unclean, unclean, so that people could get their distance away from them. These were people that were isolated and rejected by society that lived alone. But leprosy as a disease was really something that started out with muscle fatigue and aches and pains in the joint, which would eventually lead to scaly rashes on the skin that would soon lump up and fill with pus. And their faces would begin to contort. And before long, their faces would resemble where they would be so disfigured and marred that they wouldn't even look human anymore. It's a, it's, a, it's a disease that attacks the nerves in the cooler parts of the body. This is what I found, particularly those in the hands, the feet, and the face. You know, there's a common misconception that people who had leprosy would just spontaneously lose fingers and toes. That's not really what happened, but what did happen, the result of the, the nerve damage in the extremities was that people wouldn't feel pain any, anymore. They didn't have pain. The nerves were, were fried, and so they would be more susceptible to injury. 
An injury in those days would cause infection because they didn't have the methods, uh, the means to treat those infections. And so the, the bacteria would just eat away at the flesh and the cartilage would get absorbed into the body and the, the tissue around the bones would shrivel up and the bones would shorten. And that's what caused people's toes and fingers to kind of become marred or shortened or look like they had fallen off was because of the repeated injuries and the infections that would result from these, from these injuries. Literally, their bodies began to decompose and smell like it as they were living. I wanted to pull up some pictures, but I didn't want to upset anybody here today or cause your stomach to turn because it was, it was just gross what they went through. And this is the man that's kneeling in front of Jesus in his personal space saying, Jesus, if you're willing, you can heal me. And what does Jesus do in that moment? Look at verse 3. Jesus reached out his hand, and what did he do? Say it with me. He touched the man. I am willing, Jesus said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. You know, I know none of us are God, but if you could imagine this scene with me for just a moment, if you will, you know, one of the most contagious diseases of its time, this guy is riddled with leprosy, and if I'm Jesus and this guy kneels before me, what am I doing? If I'm honest, I'm like, I'll pray for you, all right? But hand sanitizer hasn't been invented yet, okay? I'll pray for you from a distance, but I'm not gonna touch you because you're unclean. But that's not what Jesus did. He touched the man. And what's interesting to me is that if you look through all four gospels, you see story after story of Jesus healing people with simply speaking it out. He didn't need to touch anyone to heal them. I mean, take Lazarus, for example. The dude wasn't just sick, he had died. He was in a tomb buried for four days. And Jesus says, roll the stone away and says, Lazarus, come forth. And a dead dude comes back to life and walks out of the tomb. Jesus didn't need to touch anyone. He simply needed the power of his word to heal the disease. So why did Jesus touch this man? Perhaps he needed to be healed from more than just leprosy. Maybe he also needed to be healed from his relational poverty. I wonder how long it had been since this man had experienced the touch of another human being, since he had felt the embrace of a friend or from his mother. This guy was isolated and secluded from society, complete life of rejection, and sometimes the only thing that can heal that disease is the touch from another human being, a warm hug. Jesus touched him, and he healed him. You know, there are so many people in this room here today, and you come to Life Church consistently. Maybe it's because you like Pastor Craig's messages. Maybe it's because you enjoy the worship. But if you're honest, I think a lot of us come to church because it may be the only time of the week or the only place where you have any real human contact, where you get a hug or a handshake or a, or a high five. That's why you come. It reminds me of a story I heard this week of a 16-year-old kid who was a grocery store clerk who had this woman, 65-year-old lady named Ruth, who was retired and would come and check out in his line every single Thursday at 4.30 for two years. She would come, bring her groceries, check out. They would strike up conversation. You know, she would pay for her groceries, and he would hand her her change, put his hand on hers, and say, Ruth, have a great day. We'll see you next week. 
Every single Thursday at 4.30, Ruth came back, stood in line in his aisle, and checked out her groceries. And so finally, this kid turns 18. He's getting ready to go off to college and recognizes that this is going to be the last time he probably sees Ruth. And so he tells her that and says, Ruth, I just have to ask a question. You know, for two years, you've been coming through my aisle to check out your groceries every Thursday at 4.30. Why? Why me? Because there's a lot of weeks where I've got three, four, five people in line, and maybe the next aisle over has nobody, but yet you still stand in my aisle and have me check you out. Why? And she began to tear up, and she said, what you don't understand, honey, is that every Thursday at 4.30 is the only day and time of my week where somebody actually touches me. I'm divorced. I live alone. And you don't understand what your touch means to me. When you touch my hand and you say, Ruth, have a great day. I'll see you next week. See, we are wired by God for human connection. A loving touch, a loving hug can change someone's life. And as a church, listen to me, this is who we are going to be. We're not going to violate people's personal spaces, but I tell you what, if somebody comes in here and they need a hug, by golly, we're going to give them a hug, amen, church? We're going to be the friendliest church around because people need to be loved by touch. Second thing we need to do, if you're taking notes, write this one down, is we're going to love by listening. We love by listening. Now, here's the deal. When it comes to listening, most people don't listen when somebody is talking with the intent to truly understand them. Most people listen with the intent to respond and reply, right? How many people are guilty of that? I might be nodding my head, pretending like I'm hearing everything you're saying, but in my head, I'm actually thinking about the awesome comeback I have to whatever it is you're actually going to say right? We don't listen to understand. We listen to reply. But people need to be loved by listening. And Jesus was a great listener. There's this amazing story in Luke 24 that I want to give you a little bit of context of before I read from the passage. You know, there's these two guys walking down the road, and Jesus had just been crucified, and nobody really knew yet that he had resurrected. And these two guys had placed all of their hopes on this guy's claims that he was going to establish a kingdom, not realizing that he was referring to a heavenly kingdom. They thought he was going to establish an earthly kingdom, and all of a sudden, he's dead. And they're dejected, and they don't know what to do. So they're moping down the side of the road, lonely and depressed and discouraged, when all of a sudden, Jesus comes up alongside of them, somehow miraculously disguising his identity. And look at the exchange that takes place in Luke 24 verse 17. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? I love Jesus' sense of humor. I wonder if he said that with a smirk on his face. What are you guys talking about? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? Now, at this moment, you know, Jesus could have responded very, very differently. They're bummed. Their their eternal hopes have been dashed. And Jesus could have been like, ta-da, it's me. Did I scare some of you? It's like, stop being so depressed. I'm alive. I'm here. No, but what did he do? He comes alongside of them. Hey, what are you guys talking about? And after Cleopas says, hey, have you been hiding under a rock? Don't you know what's going on around here? Jesus continues with a second question. Look at verse 19. What things, he asked. I love it. What things? 
But I think this is huge. You know, and I know a lot of sermons have been preached about the meaning of, you know, the, the road to Emmaus and why didn't Jesus reveal himself to these guys right away and what took place in that exchange. But I think maybe Jesus was modeling something for us in this moment because, you know, there are people in our worlds all around us that need to know we love them, not just when everything is good and not just when their questions are answered, but when they're questioning, when they're doubting, when they're depressed, when they're lonely, in the middle of my, you know, dejection, when I'm discouraged, to come alongside and say, you know what, how can I pray for you? Tell me your story. What's, what's happening in your life? I wonder if some of you might walk up to somebody after church today, somebody that you've never spoken to, and ask them, say, how are you doing? And I would maybe encourage you to add one word to that question, the word really. How are you doing really? And will you love them by listening? You know, Kelly and I have been married for 10 glorious years. In fact, um, I am wearing this shirt because in exactly 72 hours from now, we will be on a plane to the lovely country of Jamaica to spend six glorious days, kid-free days, to celebrate our anniversary. I am counting down the hours now, not just the days, but I bought this shirt specifically for Jamaica, and I wanted to wear it to get myself in the mood to remind myself that we're just three days away, three more days. But in 10 years of marriage, you know, we have, I've learned a small amount about listening. But in the beginning of our marriage, I wasn't so good at it. You know, when I would hear the question from Kelly, say, honey, can we talk? Instantly, I would kind of like, oh, no, I'm about to find out how I suck as a husband again because I would filter everything through this lens of, of, you know, failure. You know, I failed again. But I've learned a little bit over the years that really her wanting to talk was not her wanting to tell me how I failed as a husband or even really wanting me to fix whatever it was that she was struggling with. She simply wanted to know that I cared about what was happening in her heart. And she just wanted somebody to listen to. So I'd like to think I've grown a little bit in 10 years and gotten better at, instead of jumping in right away and trying to fix it, just sitting there and listening. And I think sometimes that's the best way, the most powerful way we can love people is just lend them our ear. You know, it's interesting to me, and I'm sure you've all heard this, God gave us two ears and one mouth. We should probably listen twice as often as we speak. It's also interesting to me that, the letters in the word listen are the exact same letters in the word silent. Maybe we should be quiet when we listen instead of being so quick to respond and reply. You know, one of the most difficult things I've done since being in full-time ministry is officiating funerals, and somehow I came to be known as like the funeral pastor at Crossroads in my last, you know, several years there in Columbus. Um, but one in particular happened last year, there was this girl in our church named Shelby Slagle who was 26 years old, who had a congenital heart defect, and she was one of our happiest, most joyful volunteers. You would never know some of the physical health challenges that she faced, but she served every single weekend in our guest services area, always with a smile on her face. But she was on the um, heart transplant donor list for a long time, waiting for that call for years and years. And finally, last May, she got the call that they found a heart for her. And so the family was elated, the church was excited for her, and so she drove to Pittsburgh the very next day when she got the call, one of the leading hospitals in the country for heart transplants, 
And initially, after the surgery, everything looked like it was going well. The body was, was receiving it, and she was starting to slowly get better. You know, that's a long process when you have an organ transplant. But a couple weeks after the surgery, she developed an infection that the doctors weren't able to keep at bay. And I got a call one Friday morning from her best friend who was by her bedside with the family saying, Pete, the doctors are saying it doesn't look like Shelby's going to make it through the day, so I don't know if you'd like to maybe try and come here to be a support to the family. And I no sooner jumped in my car and drove the three hours to Pittsburgh just in time because I got to spend the last hour and a half of Shelby's life on this earth in the hospital room with her family, just praying for them, hugging them, listening to them, being quiet as we watched the monitors, you know, and her vital signs slowly drop, the blood pressure and the heart rate eventually go down until her heart stopped. Cried with them, hugged them, loved them. And the weeks after the surgery, or in the weeks after the funeral that I officiated, I would get a card from the parents and a letter from her husband who had, they'd only been married a year and a half when she passed away that both said the same thing. They said, Pastor Pete, thank you so much for being with us in our darkest time and our most difficult hour because you have no idea the things you said to us were exactly what we needed to hear. And I thought to myself, what things did you hear? Because I didn't really say anything. I was just there. What do you say to somebody in that moment? There's nothing you can say except, man, I'm sorry you have to go through this. But that meant something to them. And some of you have someone in your life right now that all they need and want from you is for you to listen to them. Ask them an open-ended question and listen. Jesus modeled this for us. So we love with touch and we love by listening. And finally, the third way that we love the lonely is we love them with our time. We love with time. You know, Jesus had three and a half years of ministry on earth before he was crucified. And he fit an awful lot into that three and a half years. I mean, he was always on the go, always on his way to preach or teach somewhere, always on his way to heal someone, always on his way to multiply a few loaves of bread and a few fish to feed, you know, experts say probably 15, 20,000 people, including women and children. He was always busy, always on the move, but he was never too busy to be interrupted whether it was little children that wanted to come to him that the disciples tried to shoo away. And he says, hey, hey no, don't, perm- don't keep the kids from coming unto me. Or one of my favorite stories is actually in Luke chapter five when Jesus is teaching in somebody's home in a town that he had never been to up until that point. And this crowd gathers around and this house is jam-packed, right? And people are hanging on every single word he says. And then there's these four guys that are in town that hear Jesus is there. And they, they've heard the reports of the healings that Jesus has performed. And they know that they've got a paralyzed friend that could possibly be healed if they get him to Jesus. So they bring their friend to the house, but there's no way to get in because there's so many people flowing out of this house. And so they come up with this idea to go up to the roof of the house and start digging a hole in the clay mud roof to lower their friend down in front of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but how many of you, like, are annoyed by interruptions? I'm annoyed by interruptions. I mean, Kelly and I led a small group back in Columbus where we had 14 of us in the small group. And between the 14 of us, there were 16 kids. 
And so every Wednesday night at our house, there were 30 people in our house. It was crazy. It was pandemonium and chaos, but we loved it. It was awesome. But I would sometimes get annoyed because, you know, the sitters, which we had, were awesome. You know, sometimes they had a hard time keeping the kids in the basement for that hour and a half to two hours that we were trying to get through our study. And so inevitably, I'd be kind of reaching the end of the teaching or whatever, getting to point three, and these kids would come running up, you know, and interrupting me. And I'd be like, man, come on, downstairs, we're almost done. But until your small group is being interrupted by somebody literally peeling off the asphalt singles of your house and cutting a hole in your roof, where you're going to have to file a homeowner's claim the very next day, yeah, your group meeting maybe isn't quite that distracting. But that's exactly what is happening in this moment. These guys dig a hole in the roof and lower this guy on a mat in front of Jesus while he's teaching. And what does Jesus do in that moment? He doesn't teach point three of his message. He stops. And he turns to the man, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Oh, and by the way, pick up your mat and walk, too. You're healed. Jesus may have been busy, but he was never too busy to stop and realize that God's assignment for him was whoever was put in front of him in that moment. You know, and I wish, that's the power of this is that if we would recognize sometimes the interruptions that we see as inconveniences are actually divine opportunities to connect with someone, to show Jesus to someone. I wish I would realize that whomever God puts in front of me in a moment, regardless of what I'm doing in that moment, is God's assignment for me. Right then, right there. And I think if we as a church would operate this way, there wouldn't be any need in our community because we would all be open to those divine interruptions. And we would all be ready to meet the need presented to us in that moment. You know, one of the biggest regrets that people say they have when they reach the end of their time while they're on their deathbed is not having spent more time with the people they love. You know, my dad died 17 years ago. And my biggest regret to this day, we just had the 17-year anniversary of his home going in July last month. My biggest regret to this day is that I didn't spend more time with him when I had the time. You know, there are people in your life right now that although you're insanely busy, they are longing for time with you. One of the best ways you can love them is simply by giving them your time. And I'm afraid that as a culture, we're so bombarded with what seems urgent that we fill our calendars with those urgent things and we forget to do the most important things because we confuse urgent with important. But please, can I encourage you, don't let the urgent crowd out the important. Don't let the urgent crowd out the important. So we love the lonely with touch. We're gonna give the best hugs of any church around. You know, we love the lonely by listening and listening to truly understand them, and we love them by giving them our time. Before I close, you know, there's a video that I found that I wanted to show you today that really kind of encapsulates uh, everything we've talked about through this series. You know, and as I look around the audience today, I recognize that what you're about to see um, may not be your style, may not be your taste, uh, may not fit your generational preferences, let me put it uh, that way. But what I want to encourage everyone here today is to really listen to the words that are being spoken and the heart behind what is being said. So take a look at this.
must first know who your neighbor is. But before you can even begin the neighborly process of neighboring them, you must first comprehend the neighborhood of your own skin. For we were the worst of neighbors, waging cul-de-sac wars with our transgressions, furnishing our habitats with our inhabiting sins. We were residing in hate, as if bricks of enmity formed our residences, and we were walling ourselves off as if selfish deeds were our addresses. We were disgruntled neighbors of the Almighty, and we were drowning in the mortgage of our flesh's home, knowing that no wage we could ever earn could pay off our wager. But now we actually can love others because God himself did show us how to neighbor. we first lived without a family. We were cut off from our true father and from our line of royalty. We love the lonely because he who is love became loneliness for us and because he who is God was forsaken by God when he cried out on the cross. We reconcile the races because we were of the wrong race. We were children of Adam, by nature children of wrath. And because of the color of our sin-stained skin, we deserved all the horror of our racism. We empower the poor because we were once homeless without roof, wall, or door. We thought we had all the comforts of earth, but hell was all we actually had in store. We do all this and more, but not because we're trying to somehow be on our best behavior. We do it in response to and because of the true one who taught us how to neighbor. Lonely sorrows and phony models I'm doing good, I'm just fine But inside my soul was hollow My life was a hot mess Home far from spotless Syringes left behind cabinet doors Liquor bottles in closets I went to church a few times They shook my hand, said God bless For no one embraced, closed in a space This orphan needed their arms stretched By the time I was 
16, left my house for the third time. By 17, I didn't have a home. Nomadic roaming to survive. Inside, I hated God. Waited long for love to land. Loneliness was my only friend. And no one seemed to understand. And all of that, it's a true story. So how did I get here today? My heart beats to God's rhythm. Jesus Christ took tears away. But how'd he do it? Here's the way. One man didn't fear my space. He took me into his home and then showed love. stuff, huh? You know, you can't impact everyone, but you can all impact someone. God said it's not good for man to be alone. So what are you going to do about the ones in your life who are alone right now? So many people, you know, don't do something for someone because they feel like if they do, then they'll have to do it for everyone. In the name of fairness, well, if I do it for this person, then I've got to do it for this person. And I say, no, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. So my question to you today is this, who's the one? Who's the one in your life? The one person who really needs a hug that you can show love to in that way this week? Who's the one person in your life that no one ever seems to listen to, but you can give them your listening ear this week, maybe invite them out for a cup of coffee and listen to them? Who's the one person that you can slow down for this week and give some of your time to? Who's the one person you're gonna reach out to this week? But this begs the question, you know, what if you're here right now and you're saying, well, what about me? I'm lonely. I, I need to be loved with touch. I need to be loved with someone listening to me. I need to be loved by someone spending their time with me. Maybe you're here today and you feel alone. 
I want to say two things to you as I close, and the first is this, and I pray the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart louder than my words can, but the first is this, you are family here. We are a family, and we love you. We're not perfect. We're a bit dysfunctional at times, but God has given us all to each other to help walk each other through the difficult seasons of our lives when we feel alone. You need to know you're not alone here today. This church will love you and embrace you. We'll listen to you, and we'll spend time with you, your family here. And the second thing that I want to say to you, even more importantly than the first, and that is this, God loves you. God loves you. We were created by God for intimacy and relationship and fellowship with him, not just, not just to know about him. It's not good enough to just understand or know a few Bible verses, but to really know him. He was a real person that really lived and really died and really rose again that we can have a real relationship with. God loves you. I want to read a verse from Isaiah chapter 41 and just kind of declare this and speak this over your hearts. For those of you here today would say that you're lonely, I want you to listen to the words of this verse as I speak them over your heart. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. You might feel alone today, but you are not alone. We love you, and God loves you. As we wrap up this fourth and final week of this series called How to Neighbor, I just pray that you guys feel what, you know, we've motivated and mobilized you to be the church to these different groups of people and recognizing that everyone is our neighbor. The person right in front of you, the person that lives next door to you, that maybe even lives within your own house. The orphan, the lonely, the poor, different races, doesn't matter. They're all our neighbors. And Jesus said the greatest commandment is all, of all is that we would love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and that the second is like it which is that we would love our neighbor as ourself. The way we show God that we've received his love is by giving that love back to him and to others. Can I pray for you all today as we close? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this reminder today, this moment right now that you are here with us. Lord, I just ask that if there's anybody here that's lonely, I'm actually gonna ask some of you to be a little bit bold and courageous here today because those that would say they're lonely, the last thing that they would ever want to do is to draw attention to themselves. But if you're here today and you would say, you know what, I'm lonely and I need the compassion and the hospitality and the love of God and the love of God's people, if you would be bold enough to say, you know what, that's me, I'm lonely here today, would you just shoot your hand up so we can pray for you as a church? couple hands going up all over here. Thank you so much for your honesty and for your courage. I also, you can put your hands down. I also want to ask another question. As I've been preaching this message today, I know God has been bringing to your mind the name and the face of somebody in your life who you know is lonely and needs a touch, needs to know that they're not alone. If God is bringing somebody to your mind and to your heart right now, I want you to raise your hand up right now too so we can pray for them and pray for you that God would encourage you to take that step this week, have the courage to reach out to them, hands going up all over the place right now. God, I thank you for the honesty of the people in this church to say, yes, I'm lonely. 
I need love. And for those that have been prompted by your Holy Spirit to think of somebody in their life that needs to know they're not alone, God, I pray for both of those groups of people, the people that raise their hands. God, would your Holy Spirit come alongside of those who are lonely and bring people into their lives that could show them what real love is like. And for those that have been brought to our attention and our memory through this message, God, I pray that you would anoint the times of connection that we're gonna have today or later this week as we reach out to them, as we sit down for coffee. God, I pray that you would use us to show those people that they matter, that they're not alone, that we love them and that you love them. And right now in this moment, if you walked into this place, I can't pass up the opportunity to ask if there's anybody here that feels spiritually alone because you've never had a relationship with your heavenly father because maybe you've doubted his existence. Maybe so much bad stuff has happened in your life that you doubt a good, loving God would never allow such horrible things to happen to a person. But you've felt something through the series. Maybe you felt something here this morning. That's the Holy Spirit drawing you to himself saying, I want to come in and I want a fellowship with you. I want a relationship with you. If that's you here this morning, would you be so bold as to lift up your hand and say, I want to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. I want a relationship with my heavenly father because Jesus can identify with you in your loneliness. He was beaten and tortured more than any human could endure, disfigured beyond the point of human recognition. Certainly he felt alone from human connection in that time. But what was even worse is that for the first time since eternity passed, the Bible says that because God is a holy God and he can't be in the presence of evil, it says that Jesus became sin for us. And it said that the Father had to look away. That's why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows what it's like to feel alone and disconnected from the Father, but he is here right now to tell you that he wants to come into your heart and into your life and have a relationship with you. Would you raise your hand if that's you here today and you want a relationship with your heavenly father? God, I thank you that every person here knows you. Or if they don't and we're just afraid to lift up their hand, God, I pray that you would just continue to minister to them and bring people into their lives that can just show them your love in a very real and tangible way. But God, we thank you as your children, as your sons and your daughters that you suffered the rejection of men and the turning of your father's face so that we could know what it's like to have a relationship with you. God, this week I pray that we would have this truth explode in our hearts and in our spirits in a way that would compel us to love our neighbor in the same way that you've loved us, God. Extravagantly, scandalously, God, loving people who the religious establishment would soon throw away or reject and not associate with. God, I pray that we would find those people and love them. And God, may your love just, may it never grow old for us. I know that there are seasons in life, there are mountaintop experiences and valleys, there are dry times and there are times of refreshing, but God, I pray that your love would always be constant. You promised to never leave us and never forsake us. So God, I thank you that we are never alone. God, we thank you again.
for your reminder and for your word and for the fact that you showed us how to love the lonely. In Jesus' name we pray, all of God's people here said.